Have you ever wondered? Have you ever wondered why the most cheerful, mindlessly enjoyable, curled up in front of the fireplace shows on television are always about murder? I think it's true. Strange as it may be, for some reason it seems like there are few things with more power to make us feel safe, reassured, and content, like all's well with the world, than a good murder mystery. It's true for me, at least. And the more awful the murder, the better. The show opens with the banker's wife over at the vicarage for tea, chomping down on an elegant little strychnine and arsenic and cucumber sandwich, keeling over and spilling her tea all over the rug. It's terrible. She spilled her tea on the rug. And how horrifying, we think. Who could have done this? Was it her scheming husband? Was it Colonel Mustard? Was it the vicar? Was it the co-vicar? But fundamentally, we know that by the end of the hour, justice will be done. Father Brown or Father Sidney is on the case, or Jessica Fletcher or Columbo or Miss Marple, or your favorite sleuth. In the story's world, no killer ever gets away. Never. And I also know that no one ever questions just why it is that there's a murder every week in this idyllic little village, and why sweet old Miss Jessica always seems to know just how did it, who did it. <laughs> why do we love these kinds of stories? I love them too. Why do stories that are, let's not forget, about murder make us somehow feel safe and secure and happy. It's a very strange thing. Well, this is the judgment, St. John tells us. That the light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. <clears throat> Part of why we love murder mysteries, I think, is the way that they have of shining the clear light of judgment, sort of the spotlight of judgment, on people whose deeds are evil. As I mentioned, in these stories, no one ever gets away. Of course, everyone at first has an airtight alibi, right? But before long, someone's deeds have always found them out. Columbo may look like a bumbler, and Miss Marple may look like a sweet old lady, but you just watch because they don't miss a thing. <coughs> there may be a murder a week in this little town, but at least in this town, we can say the justice is done. I think that's where the sense of safety and reassurance in these stories comes from. For obvious reasons, it can be very appealing to imagine ourselves in the kind of place where the bad guy always goes to jail, where justice always wins. There's another reason why we love this stories, these stories, I think. And that's because the light of judgment is always shining down on someone else. Not on you, not on me, not on us, someone else. The killer is never our favorite sleuth or our favorite cast of characters. Columba didn't do it. Jessica Fletcher didn't do it. The culprit is always someone we've never met before, in fact. Someone who's from outside, sort of, of the circle of warm, happy light that's cast on a little village and our favorite characters that we see every episode. 
The light of judgment never shines on us. No. And it certainly never shines its way into our living rooms where we're curled up on the couch. That would be quite a turn of events, wouldn't it? Imagine if Jessica Fletcher turned her eyes toward the television screen and looked right into your eyes. It's him, she says to the detective standing around her. It was him all along, just there in his living room, sitting there watching us. And the searchlights turn from somewhere and train themselves right on you, just you. And then all of a sudden there's a pounding on your door. And you know that all of a sudden you have been found out. Strange. But that would be frightening, wouldn't it? Thank goodness we never have to worry about that. Do we? This is the judgment, St. John tells us. That the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. What is this light? Where does it come from? We don't have to wonder. Later on in John's Gospel, everything is, shall I say, illuminated when Jesus says straight out that he is the light of the world. Jesus is the light. Have you ever wondered Switching gears for a minute here. Have you ever wondered why it is that the light of the world, Jesus, got himself killed? On, of all people of the world, right, Jesus was the only sinless one. He was full of love, compassion, justice, truth, and grace. Wouldn't everyone want to be his best friend? He's the best person around, right? Wouldn't everyone want to hang on his every word and live like he lived? Of course, many people did, to a point at least. Jesus drew enormous crowds and bands of disciples who followed him everywhere. But he also drew enormous opposition, especially as some of the, let's say, hard edges of his message became clearer. He wasn't a go-along-and-get-along type of guy, Jesus. He didn't evade the truth when no one around wanted to hear it. He didn't rationalize things, cut corners in order to make life a little easier. He didn't conveniently blame all of the problems on the wor- of the world on those guys over there. Instead of on us, on you and me. He didn't say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. You're doing the best you can. It would be too hard to change your life now. You're good just the way you are. Mm -mm. He said things like this. Repent. Be perfect. Even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Take up your cross and follow me. Those are direct quotes. And when it came time for the trial of souls one Friday when the whole world went dark, not one of the disciples followed him all the way to the end. 
the light, the light of such a man is blinding. It shines from beyond into our living rooms, and we don't necessarily want to see it. It's no wonder, I think, that we try to shield our eyes from this light, tone it down to a level we can live with, strike a deal, and turn away. It's no wonder, I think, that we'd rather imagine ourselves in a cozy little village somewhere where the culprit is always caught, and the culprit is never you or me, or us. I ask you, what is more frightening? Would it be more frightening to imagine that the world is a place where justice is simply never done? That's frightening. Or is it more frightening to imagine that justice is done? Perfect justice. Which means that I've been found out too. Me and my people along with me. And the damned blood guilt of murder will stain us forever and drive us all as mad as Lady Macbeth. Well, we know those stories, too. And they're the truly frightening ones. Of course, Murder, She Wrote and Columbo are far more reassuring. So here's the question, I think. Can there be a murder story that shines the light of justice into every corner of the world and every crevice of our own hearts that doesn't destroy us. Murder mysteries, like the ones we see on television, are cozy and reassuring because they're not real. And we know they aren't real, part of us does, but that's why we love them, because we so want them to be real. We want the blood guilt of the world to be swept away, along with the outsider whose fault everything is, and we want our village to be cozy and perfect again. All's well with the world. And so we watch these shows with their ritual, almost liturgical precision. The same story every time, really. The criminal found out, the guilt punished, the guilty purged, every week for an hour at the same time, Tuesday at 7 or Friday at 8. They're liturgies, I think. Liturgies of cleansing, and the world put to rights, even though they're also liturgies of fantasy and escape, and we love them for it. I ask again, can there be a murder story that shines the searchlight of justice into our world, the real world, without blinding us all and doing us in? Can there be a liturgy that cleanses us, but for real? One that isn't just a fantasy of escape on television. There could, I think, only be one way. It could only be if the one who was murdered came back to life. If the evil deeds of men were undone, by a goodness that's stronger than the darkness of death itself. St. John testifies that this is so. The light shines in the darkness, he says, 
and the darkness did not overcome it. It could only be if the one who was slain came back to the very friends who had left him and the enemies who had killed him, not in revenge and destroying rage, but with his scarred hands wide open, offering forgiveness and peace and another chance at life. St. John writes that this is what happened. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. It could only be, I think, if the blood guilt that would drive us mad with shame and sorrow were born somehow on our behalf. If, as John says, the Son of Man were lifted up in the wilderness, like the serpent, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. St. Paul testifies elsewhere of the great mystery of this murder. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in our reading for today, God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him. Here indeed is a mystery, a murder story that is neither fantasy nor tragedy, but instead the happiest story of them all. The great searchlight of God's justice shines out into the world and shines down on us right here where we sit in our pews, seen for exactly who we are by the Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. But, thank God, the blinding light of justice has a face and a name. It's Jesus, the Son of God, who did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that we might be saved through him. This Jesus, who was killed and rose again, invites us to come to his table, trusting not in our own righteousness, but in his manifold and great mercies, to receive his most precious body and blood and be filled with his grace, made one body with him, that he may dwell in us and we in him. It's the same story, after all, every week, repeated with ritual, liturgical precision, every week for an hour at the same time, Sunday at 8 or at 10.15. In this story, we give him our death, and we receive in return his life. We give him our guilt, and we receive in return his righteousness. We give him our resentments and our betrayals, and we receive his forgiveness and open arms. What a glorious mystery this is. 
Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen. Amen. Amen.